0: Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig.
1: And Parker Dillman. This is episode 199. Getting there, getting there, getting there, getting there. One more. <laughs> One more. <laughs> One more.
0: <laughs>
1: That's all over, right? And then we've wasted
0: your time for 200
1: weeks. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> we haven't missed a... Well, we'll do that when we hit 200. So. Well, Yes. Yes. Um, so I've been working more on that uh, 50 volt power pack that I was talking about last week. I managed to pull the cells out without endangering my life or my the building I live in. And um, <laughs> the I, I basically I unhooked the the uh, protection circuit and um, basically I did like a reboot of the protection circuit. So I like unplugged it from the battery pack and then or unsoldered it I should say from the battery pack and then resoldered it back on. And it actually managed to work again. I actually was able to pull 50 volts off the uh, safe side of the protection circuit. And it worked for about a day and then it died again. Um, And so I I reset it again. It only worked for about 30 seconds this time and then it died. And then this time I actually took the protection circuit off. I inspected everything. Everything looked fine. So I think at this point is one of the four banks in this power pack because it's a... 12 cells in series, four parallel of those. And I'm going to say probably one of those banks is probably low. I haven't checked yet, but I'm saying I'm thinking like basically that protection circuit is finding that one of the s- banks is is you know low or dead. Does it does it monitor each one individually, each bank? I don't think it, it mon- I think it monitors each bank individually but not each uh cell. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like each 12 in series it monitors it's or something like that. Yeah,
0: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's it basically, it knows that something is wrong with it. So I'm going to take it all apart, measure all the banks, see what's wrong. And I'll probably end up just scrapping the entire thing and just use the eighteen six fifties for other projects. Um, Cause I can always use lithium cells and these look like really good, uh, uh, high quality made cells so it's probably just one cell and this entire pack is bad
0: what if you um oh but you don't you don't know which one of the banks is bad you know yeah which-
1: so i have to basically disassemble the entire thing and the entire thing is kind of glued together so basically once i break it the banks apart to actually test the cells individually it's not going to go back together really well <laughs> <laughs> Because I was going to suggest, like, okay, so if you have a
0: bad bank, just get rid of that bank and run it, you know, have a lower voltage supply,
1: you know? Well, you could get rid of one bank and you'd have three-fourths of the capacity. Oh, they're all in parallel. Yeah, the four banks are in in parallel, and then Ah. each bank has 12 in series. I'm going to bet you it's just actually one cell and that whole thing is bad. Yeah. And... It's the problem is once you crack it open, it's not going to go back together really well. Mm. I guess I could probably like put a new cell in and then duct tape the whole thing back together and then (laughs) slam it back in the (laughs) plastic (laughs) enclosure. But it's like the moment like the bike falls over and then jostles the battery and now you have a big lithium fire and yeah. And your mom's on the bike. Yes. So. But but okay. But
0: if you did get rid of it, you, uh, one bank, you could you could just run three quarters.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. If you just dump one bank in part, well, and then I guess you would just take the monitoring circuit and just put it on the another bank.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You could. Both. Well, I'm wondering uh, with that sense, like there's got to be four different sense wires where it's it's detecting mm-hmm. current from it. So yeah, you could either reroute one. But I'm wondering if, are I mean, if you can access the chip, could you just uh, read those voltages and see
1: if you got any uh, find out what problematic bank it is yeah because the board though i i will take a picture of it but it's got like a it looks like a hundred wires just like spider webbing into the b- battery pack Got it. um so it's like finding out which one that you need to measure i have no idea the industrial design is is a nightmare right yeah it's like they used really high quality like power cells uh and I think they're LG brand. Um, but the problem is, like, the actual overall construction of this thing is terrible. <laughs> so all the money went into the lithium. No, none of it went into the actual, like, packaging of this this power pack. It's almost a wonder of, like, no wonder this thing did fail. Is it made of the finest Chineseium? Uh, yeah, it's ABS plastic all around. So it's not even good as good as, like, a tool battery pack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I know you watch AVE on on YouTube, and he takes apart. That's my one of my favorite parts of like the tools. To built uh, when he takes apart tools is taking apart the battery pack, because then you can really see who what manufacturer actually cares about like the longevity of their tool. Because what's going to fail first is usually the batteries, right? Um, and the higher end tools they typically have, you know their construction internally of the battery packs are usually nicer this is like it looks like it was built from harbor freight like (laughs) you open it up and there's a lot of air and it's really just like celastic and foam that kind of like cushion everything yeah it was never really designed to be taken apart which is surprising because it's like it had just like six like phillips head screws to take it apart not even security screws I would have thought the whole thing would be glued together, but no, use six screws and you can take the whole big case off. Screws are cheap, glue yeah. is a pain. So, I yeah,
0: guess- but
1: <clears throat> you think you would just do snap tabs and just snap the whole thing together? Then you oh, don't have fasteners. one-time snap tabs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not. I mean, when you open it up, it is definitely not made be serviced. <laughs> you know. Okay, so
0: speaking of snap tabs, uh, so back in in my college days, I worked um, as a computer monitor repair technician for about a year and a half. And I fixed a whole bunch of, um, well, a whole bunch of varieties of, of, of monitors, but mainly Dell's. And uh, these Dell used sort of like a clamshell, but snap tab uh, designed for the bezels of their, um, their monitors. And we're talking about, this is 2009 or 2008, 2009 time. <clears throat> and we were actually fixing these monitors for, the automotive industry so uh, a lot of these monitors were pretty old in fact we had an entire team dedicated to fixing the old green screen uh monitors like like, like the 10 inch ones the tiny mm-hmm. ones but uh but on the on the um uh, the monitors i was i was working on there like the the cheapo 12 inch ones that you would that you would get for you know whatever bottom line computer you bought from dell the the whole point of this is those snap tabs there was virtually no way to open these monitors without just like beating the living snot out of the plastic, you know, because <laughs> you had to take a flathead screwdriver and just like kind of like pry into it until you either break the snap tab or or like break it loose from its uh, its clutches. I don't know. I can't stand snap tabs, especially on things like consumer televisions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I get it. I'm one of the very, very few people who ever take their television apart. But still it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm about to screw my bezel up because there's no way to open this without
1: doing that. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I actually had a the first flat screen TV I ever bought, I bought a a uh I bought a Best Buy brand was Insignia was the brand. Mm-hmm. And it was a dumb TV. Um, so this is before the era of smart TVs that everyone buys now. Um, and it was a 34 inch and about a year after I bought it, the HDMI port stopped working. And, um, at the time I still lived on campus in a dorm room at, at, at UT. Um, and the person who came to repair it actually repaired it on the floor of my dorm room but it didn't have it didn't have any snap tabs. It came apart with just everything just came apart with screws. And oh. then the HDMI port box, like all the electronics was in one box and he just swapped that box out, plugged in all the cables and it worked. like at the time, I'm like, oh man, that's like was really well engineered that he can just do that on like the f- dirty ass floor in my dorm room, right <laughs> um, but that was like the, I, I think that's the only piece of consumer electronics I've ever s- taken apart that came apart that easily. Everything else is, yeah, fighting snap tabs. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is most, um, I guess some people will consider like appliances, like washing machines, consumer electronics now, because how, quote, smart, unquote, they are now. Um, But they come apart pretty easily. Usually it's like two or three screws, and then you have like the shell off. So, Yeah,
0: I think they are still something that is uh not maybe not intended but but still like has a chance
1: of being serviced. Yes. Like you can still replace that 10 dollar part. That's like right. that will or, fail. Or
0: or the the whole motherboard in your washer dies and you can replace yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um I've actually replaced like our refrigerator is like a franken refrigerator now. Hmm. Um the the the, the like, you know how usually we'll have buttons on the front of your uh, ice and water dispenser to select what you want, like crushed ice or regular ice and water and all that good stuff. Well, that circuit board went out in ours and the person couldn't like because it's on their like homeowner's warranty or whatever from way back in the day when, um, man, this is going to get a long winded story. Um, <laughs> so back when Hurricane Ike, no, what's after Ike? What was the hurricane after Ike? Rita? Uh that sounds right. I- no, it's after Rita. Was well, it it was a hurricane that hit Galveston. And it was after Ike and it was after Rita. And it was it was it it wasn't Harvey, like, was it? I mean Harvey. No, 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 it wasn't that. It was, like, not, it was not that soon ago. It, this is like 2010 or 29, 2009. Uh, I don't remember. Anyways, there was a hurricane. hurricane and it, knocked out, it was a, a hurricane hit Houston, and it knocked out the power at this house for two weeks. And they came and hooked it all back up, all you know, all nice and good. And then the Comcast guys had to come back out and redo all the copper in the neighborhood too. And so they were stringing everything up. And then the guy was on our pole in our backyard, and the uh, power company miswired the ground because he goes to hook up the ground uh, for the cable uh to the pole and basically blew his screwdriver in half (laughs) (laughs) and so but that also shorted out every single thing in his house everything that was plugged in blew up
0: oh everything
1: yeah everything and so that refrigerator was under warranty still from that whole incident. That's that, that's that whole circular story now, right? <laughs> <laughs> and So, but this, so this was like two years ago, the circuit board, like basically you couldn't get the ice to come out. And so first the guy replaces the motor. Cause that's usually what goes out is the dispenser motor. And mm-hmm. that still didn't fix it. So the guy's like, well, I don't know, whatever. Um, I tried, right. So he goes away and, um, I can't remember the company who makes that refrigerator, but they called up my dad and was like, Well, you can get like 20% off of a new fridge. And I'm like, Okay, something's up with this. You know, now my gears are turning. Like, oh, we got to get this. It works great. It just doesn't dispense ice. And so I went and I jiggled the, the switch really fast and I got it to dispense ice. So I'm like, Ah, something's up with the circuit board. So I take it apart and it wasn't, it was corroded. Like the switch just. I guess being near water dispensing and stuff like that, the switch corroded, and so I went on eBay and I bought this is apparently a, a switchboard that's in like a bazillion refrigerators of this make. I think it's like GM, GM refrigerators. Um, GE, um, you mean? GE, yes. General Motors refrigerators. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Chevy. Like a rock. I have I have a muscle <laughs> refrigerator. A muscle refrigerator. <laughs> My refrigerator makes 450 cubes of ice an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyways, so I I went on eBay, found the part for like $10, fixed it. What was funny is that was not a user serviceable part as well, but you can just go on eBay and buy it. Hmm. So that's been my whole thing with like user serviceable parts is like, no, you can service them if you try hard enough. <laughs> Everything can be fixed. Everything, even can be even fixed. hermetically sealed things, right? Yes, that tiger shark is still working. Still working. and Damn. has not electrocuted any. Well, I guess no one's actually been swimming since it's been cold. So it could be just electrifying the entire pool. <laughs> the, we just don't the know. The pool could just be lethal,
0: right? Now. Yeah, it's just <laughs> lethal. <laughs> could
1: be. Could be. <laughs> no, it, it runs on a GFI, so it would definitely trip if it was if it was electrifying the pool <laughs> <laughs> um where else was gonna go with that pool sto- or the uh refrigerator story oh yeah we're talking about appliances and taking them apart yeah I, to get to that part it was like three screws and then unfortunately the bezel for that thing is snap tapped on but you can wiggle it off that's actually the worst thing is like if it was a piece of plastic that was like hidden I, I wouldn't care if it was snap tabbed on or whatever, but the fact that it was like the bezel that you always see when you see the refrigerator, it's like, oh, come on, make it so like it unscrews from the back or something, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: just so you don't accidentally, you know, booger the the plastic by, you know, drab, uh, uh, jabbing your screwdriver into it.
0: Right. Yeah. You're trying to get uh, a, a small ish, flathead screwdriver to like go in between the edge of the bezel and then you're like just like <laughs> cranking yeah. and yanking on it till it yeah, comes yeah. out yeah you can always see if someone's opened a computer monitor because it, oh, it has it has, it has, has apprentice, apprentice the, marks all the marks it. on the
1: edge yeah <laughs> and um oh so one thing this is kind of like a what we talked about last week was the uh, copper to clean out carburetor jets so I got another tip mm. um is Clean the coils on your refrigerators. Oh yeah, they run a whole hell of a lot more.
0: Yeah, efficiently. so
1: refrigerators run a lot, and they cycle a lot of air over its uh, over its um, condensers, and are that it stopped making ice. The same refrigerator, right? But yeah. it was still cold. Like it kept stuff frozen, but it couldn't freeze things. So like you'd put water in it, and it wouldn't freeze the water. And my dad was all worried about. He's like, "Oh, we had to like get a." ac guy out here and check the gas and stuff and i open it up and i look at the coil and it is seriously like a quarter inch of dust just yeah. caked on on the the uh, coil and it's vacuumed it off works fine nice but that 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 refrigerator is a champ <laughs> <laughs> it will not die i think it's like man at this point it's almost two decades old y- you remember uh, the warehouse that I
0: uh, used to have my CNC and everything in.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah, it like it was a. You say warehouse? It was a tin shed. Well, it was eighteen
0: hundred square feet with a three-ton gantry crane in it.
1: Yes, that we couldn't never get to work, and it was very scary.
0: Uh, the crane worked in two axes, just not the third. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, actually funny funny story about that crane. We used to we used to hook ourselves up um with a uh, with a uh,
1: uh, tie down straps and just drive herself flying around the shop <laughs> that was fun i would that have loved fun. to have that shop for like doing automotive stuff because having a crane you just pick whatever you want up you know what was cool
0: about it um we just used the crane to move things around the shop like if, if like my cnc at one point in time which i my cnc was 15 feet by um six six feet or five by fifteen something like that um we just picked it up with the crane and moved it to wherever we needed it to be that day which was super nice you could have turned the crane into a cnc machine yeah well so we we had talked about that at one point in time just as a joke flipping a table saw upside down and connecting it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and dangling it by the crane and then just using mm. it as like a giant um, gosh, what are those called? Uh, the Radial arm saw? <laughs> a radial arm saw but a radial oh, arm saw God. that has like a 50 foot
1: cut. <laughs> I was thinking you take the crane and you ha- on the end of the chain you just put like a lawnmower engine and then put your end mill on the shaft, Yeah, crank it up and then just drive it around. Yeah, you got like 6 horsepower router right there. Yeah. And like just that. driving around, routing out stuff, and just that motor just swinging around. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole point
0: of even bringing up that the, the warehouse is um, one of the other guys that I shared the warehouse with. Um, his neighbor, who he had known his entire life, um, she passed away, or something of that. I think, yeah, I think she passed away. I can't remember what it was, but um, uh, she had a refrigerator that she bought in Houston in 1956. And that refrigerator had been plugged in in the same spot since 1956 and uh she had like she knew um my my friend who like since he he was young and she always said when i pass away you can have my refrigerator because he always thought it was super cool because it looks like uh, a
1: family heirloom is a refrigerator yeah no, no
0: no but like this thing looked like um it looked like a uh, like 1950s like roswell astro refrigerator you yeah know? everything's rounded yeah and like super yeah. curved door and stuff like yeah, that yeah. so we got that fridge and we took it over to the shop and uh made it a
1: beer fridge how many cockroaches were underneath that thing if it hadn't moved in basically 50 years
0: you know the thing that was crazy was like she hadn't even serviced the thing it still had the original refrigerant in it
1: well yeah uh, it's ammonia right
0: yeah I, I probably at that time yeah i think it that, was ammonia something bad was in there but i mean it's still it's still rock and roll. Uh, the thing that really sucked was it was in pristine shape because she cleaned it all the time, and then we put it in the shop, which was effectively outdoors, and it just rusted to hell. which yeah. kind of sucks. That yeah. enamel
1: didn't last too long. Not at all.
0: It's it's a rusted bucket now. Yeah, which really sucks. So,
1: have you ever story. had that guy on the podcast yet? Yeah, we did actually. Uh, we had. I think we're talking about waterfalls. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I think like we that. talked about
1: water wall, which was a
0: project that uh, I did with Patrick. Ah, yes. Yeah. Patrick uh Renner and Not O'Brien with from Flying Carpet Creative. I think um gosh, we had them on back in the uh pre one hundred shelter. Yeah, pre one hundred day. That was pre one hundred. Oh my gosh. That was a long time ago. So yeah, check that episode out. Those guys are super cool. And they're doing like lots of really awesome stuff now. They got a bunch of um
1: Ah, episode fifty eight, Tungsten I beams. Is that what I want? Okay, wow. Yes. Yeah, they, are,
0: they they do large-scale sculpture work, uh, so they have uh, permanent installations. I know there's one in Austin. There's like two or three in Houston, uh, and they've got a bunch of stuff in, in the mix right now. So check out their sculpture work. It's really great. Mm. So something Hi. you were mentioning, like, watch this. I'm going to turn this all the way around back to earlier you were mentioning in your battery pack uh like there's so many wires that it was like a rat's nest yeah uh and stuff so I, I i posted a picture up in our show notes and we'll we'll have this picture available i found this the other day it's um it's an old guitar amp from the i believe this was uh, manufactured in the 70s and it's a it's called a fender uh super twin which was like fender's biggest amp at the time and uh there's a few phenolic boards in it with like a pretty sparsely populated resistors and caps and things like that. But there's almost so many wires in it that you can barely see the chassis underneath it. Like it is just, yeah. uh, So, so like, you know, I was thinking you can spend a ton of time doing industrial design to make sure that like your stuff goes together really well. And you think about every little aspect of it, or you can build something this way where it's just like, ah, just connect a wire from, every point that needs to connect to every other point. Yes, that is that's exactly sort how of the way films. they did it on this. Like, we'll, we'll post the picture in our show notes uh, if you want to check it out. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so I've uh, been also working on, I don't know if I ever talked about this project, but the uh, way back in the day, the, I used to build a lot of portable uh, consoles, That's kind of how I got started with hacking with electronics. And the uh, Atari 2600, I always wanted to build a portable of it. I never got around to it. Um, I actually even was able to manage to get a very rare Atari Junior. So the Atari 2600 had a lot of different models that they built over the years. The Junior was like the last of the last ones. It was cut down, small small in quotes, and um, and one of the last revisions of that system, they went to a single chip board. And so instead of having the three separate chips, which was the 6507 CPU, they also had a chip called the Riot chip, which did RAM and IO, so like your buttons and stuff. And then they also had the Tia chip, which did sound and video. And so you had these three big chips, and I think I have a board. So I have a board right here. I'll take a picture for the podcast. So this one's got, uh, the, this is the three chip mm-hmm. board. So the single chip looks like that. Oh God, that's huge. So it's got a dip 64 <laughs> chip. Wait, but, hey, wait, is that a dip 64, but with like selective pins? No, that's Sharpie. Because I was counting pins, no. and marking them.
0: <laughs> okay, so over over our video stream here, I can uh, I could only see a handful of the pins because marker marker over pins, but but it looks like a, like a dip chip that has like yeah, it's sixty four positions, but but it looks like only like thirty of them are populated.
1: Yeah, um, and so the funny thing is Ben, who's been on the Ben Heckendorf, who's been on the podcast a couple times, he actually has one of these chips as well. And he's he wanted to make a portable version of the single chip since like 2000 or something like that. And so I've been helping him throughout this year, kind of like, because he basically tried to build one and could never get his chip working. And what we found out was the only schematic that lives online of this system is incorrect. Hmm. 100% flat out wrong. What's wrong with and- and so we uh, basically took that PCB, reverse engineered it, pinned it out. And uh, Ben made his own PCB, wired it up, and it didn't work. <laughs> of course not. And so we I spent a, probably good afternoon on Sunday helping him debug it. And basically, he flipped two address lines around. And that took about an hour to find out. Um, basically, I had to go basically repin out my board... Checked his pen out and we're like, okay, those two address lines have flipped. Flip them, and then it started working. And then his video circuit wasn't working, and it was like one o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I gotta go to bed. Went to bed, and he texts me like thirty minutes later. He accidentally like got some surface mount resistors wrong, and he put a 10k resistor instead of like a 30 ohm <laughs> in the video circuit. So I'm like, oh, that's probably why the signal was super attenuated then. <laughs> 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 but it all works now so nice um hopefully he says he's gonna have a video of it coming out soon so should be pretty cool do you guys have a name for it i don't know what he's gonna name it so he's done most of the work i just supplied knowledge <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> just because i had another one of these boards lying around and so now i, I actually kind of want to make a Make a portable version as well. But I don't know if I ever... If I want to, like, de like, the only one of these that might exist. Because I have not been able to find another one of these ever in, like, a decade. The junior? Well, a junior with the single chip. Oh, yeah. I've got, actually, like, a box in one of these cabinets of 70... Almost 75 three-chip boards.
0: So... Don't you... Yeah, I might be calling you out here, but don't you have uh, some Ataris that still need to go out to people that you did mods for? No, they all went out. Oh, they all went. Okay, yeah, for a while at uh, under Parker's
1: desk at MacroFab, there were two
0: Ataris just sitting there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because they had to go international. Right, right. Those finally went out.
0: Yeah, Ben Ben has a bunch of videos of uh, of making things portable. Uh, I remember yeah. watching he had um, a Dreamcast one, which was that looked like an absolute nightmare to put together. Like trying to get an entire Dreamcast, which frankly isn't that big as it's, uh, uh, you know, from the get-go, but trying to get that into like a handheld size thing was kind of ridiculous.
1: Huh. I don't know where my portal is That I still have. What, your but... Nintendo one? Yeah, that one's sticking around somewhere. Oh, so well. It's got to be in this room somewhere. And um, oh, and then I got all my air raid parts printed. Finally. Oh, it's all the parts are printed. And I've got to basically. um, I got to sand some of the edges so they all fit together really well. But yeah, it looks like it's going to go together really well. And hopefully next week I crank it up. We could start episode 200 with an air raid. Air
0: raid siren. (laughs) Ah, we got to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, how How big is it? Uh, it's about the size of your head, right? Yeah, it is. Well, like like a ten inch kind of rotor or something like that.
1: Yeah. So this is this is one half the clamshell. Wait, did you press fit a bearing into there? Yes. Nice. Yeah, it's got press fit bearings, but all the screws are three D printed for this design. Wait. Like the actual screws itself, not not, not um, like
0: threaded uh, holes or
1: something. Yeah, they're see, three D printed screw. Why? I don't know. It works. <laughs> well, then why did not design, print the bearings? <laughs> I didn't design the. I didn't design it. I'm just printing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, here's the thing: Are those screws actual screws you could buy, or are they super ultra custom, only three D printable? I think. They are really rounded. I will have to take a picture of the profile, but they're they're, oh, they're almost like like they're almost like Acme thread, almost, but they're pointed.
0: Yeah, that's Uh, you know what that is (laughs) i could tell you exactly what that is that is somebody had a 3d uh rendering tool and they just put a helix on (laughs) on a triangle no on the outside of a cylinder that's what they did like that is not a a a actual thread seems to work really well though well yeah because they put the opposite helix on the part that it paints (laughs) with (laughs) (laughs) one is a grow command and one is a cut command (laughs) but hey actually you know that's kind of cool though because that's what you can do with 3d printing right
1: yes but yeah um i would have rather had like actual machine screws and then just like press fit fittings in but i didn't design it so and um the bearings almost fit so like you have to clearance some of the plastic with like a razor blade to get stuff to fit in well it could also be because you know who knows how accurate my 3d printer is you spent
0: so long trying to get Benchy to work. I mean, you you have some. and actually never printed Benchy on this one. Well, yeah, isn't that the, um, uh,
1: gosh, the Ultra Maker or whatever? What is it? Yeah, yeah, I never printed a Benchy on it. I thought you did. I printed a Benchy on that little tiny one I had. Yeah, yeah, that little acrylic one or whatnot. Yeah, which actually printed pretty well, surprisingly enough. Yeah. But yeah, the uh this one I never printed Benchy on. Oh, you printed a, b- a whole boatload of like two by two centimeter or two by two inch cubes, right? Yeah, when I was first got it, yeah. And then I printed a giant dick butt on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I, and uh, uh got a bar somewhere downtown Houston.
0: Yeah, that's at Neil's bar. If <laughs> yeah. is Neil's
1: still around. I I don't know. Is Neil's or did it get torn down from construction? I think uh, Neil's bar is still there
0: yeah I yeah I remember you printed that and it ended up uh it ended up, yeah. up on a bar
1: <laughs> yeah it en- ended up at the bar in in Houston I, re- I was actually looking at the um I was trying to look at pictures on like Google maps of Neil's bar inside to see if I can find it The the dick butt but everything all the pictures inside are so blurry it's oh, yeah. dark in there <laughs> i' have to go make a trip to Neil's bar
0: that, that bar was like two streets down from the old shop
1: Yes. I missed that place. It was a lot of fun. They had video games and they always had like shitty eighties movies on. Yeah. So we don't have anything cool like that at our at the new fab. This is the nostalgia cast
0: right here. Yep. Talking about all the things that people don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no one can be nostalgia with us. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah. Cool. What have you been working on, Steven?
0: So um, I've been wanting to do something for a while, uh, or do this for a while. Like, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing that's cool. So uh, I've talked about it a handful of times. We have a, um, a Datron Cube M8, which is a high-speed CNC mill at work, uh, which is absolutely amazing. How crazy you can get with it, and and all the all the stuff you can do. We've got a 15-tool tool changer. Everything is like touch uh, screen controlled. Everything I can design things in. It Fusion. almost
1: looks like the Tesla of a CNC machine. Oh, it pretty,
0: it very much is. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely is. And it, I've got a bunch of plugins for uh, Fusion 360, so I can just design things up, and it spits it right out to the custom code for this machine. It it makes machining things. Let's put it this way: I have a a uh, smaller mill at work that is very much a manual mill and then i've got this flagship maserati mill right next to it and the the (laughs) amount of work you have to put into a like lesser mill in a way is you get spoiled by the big one Cause it just does everything so perfect and you don't have to worry about anything. And it's always checking you to make sure you're not making mistakes and stuff like that. You're not going to drive your bit into the table and crap like that. Like uh, it, it does, it does a lot. But the whole point of this is uh, I've been, I've been kind of developing some, some new ideas for uh, doing aluminum bends uh, like, like, because we we do a lot of sheet work at at work, and I've I've had some ideas about uh, making some custom cuts in the aluminum, such that we can make some really nice bends and do enclosure work and stuff. So last week, I uh, I took some time and made a one U rack unit. Uh, that it's it's a preamp design that I've been working on uh, with uh, Roz, who's been on the poor um, his name actual name is Josh, but. Uh, he's been on the podcast a handful of times. In fact, he was on last year's Star Wars special. Yes. And he did a Transformer uh, episode with us a few uh, months ago. Regardless, he and I have been kind of designing a preamp together, and I wanted a nice case for it uh, because we're sort of prototyping and just, like, getting sounds right and things like that. But uh, So I designed this entire case and, and built it in one day, which was, like, it's incredible with a with a mill like that to be able to cut this or to like go walk into a place with just an idea and leave with something that looks like a professional enclosure. It's kind of, it's almost cheating. But uh, so get this. What I came up with is uh, a, few, a few months ago, I tried just doing V scoring. So taking a 90 degree chamfer bit and plunging it into the material and driving a line. So you get a V score. That's a 90 degree angle. And if you do that, and then bend on that score, you can actually get something decent out of it. Like you can get a ninety degree bend. The one thing that sucks about that, though, is that the outside of the material, the uh, the, the the side that you're bending against, I think, gosh, what is that? In, in in this is a weird tangent, but in origami, I think they call that a mountain fold. There's a there's a valley fold and a mountain fold. One is where you fold towards yourself, and one is where you fold away from yourself. Regardless, the outside of the material, the side that's getting stretched, like you actually, you're literally stretching the aluminum, and uh, you're putting all the bend force. You're focusing it right at that point, point. Uh, and with with the al- alloys of aluminum that we have available, it doesn't really work super well, and w- you get a lot of cracks. And depending on how deep you actually plunge your bit into the material, you end up getting, it just cracks entirely and splits and you don't get anything good. So I was thinking of, are there different ways that I could pull that off without putting, focusing all the stress of my bend directly at the tip of a 90 degree V cut? One of the thoughts was like, okay, well, what if I did like three or four or five V cuts that are more shallow and I sort of like accordion it? and mm-hmm. then you know get that
1: kind of like an old desk the old uh accordion desks yeah
0: yeah and Old desks that's a good idea if you want a wider radius maybe not even a good idea but that's that's an acceptable idea that that would get you something but it still doesn't get you like a really sharp 90 uh so i ended up coming up with this idea to take a one millimeter end mill plunge it into the material about three quarters of the way down um So you have about a quarter of material left at the bottom. So it's a flat bottom channel that you've cut across the material with this one millimeter bit. And then on the edges of that one millimeter bit, I chamfer them uh, not all the way down. So in other words, like you still have like 90 degree chamfers, but they don't go to a point. They actually go to a flat that I milled with that one millimeter Mm -hmm. bit such that when you actually perform the bend the two uh chamfered edges come together and touch so you still get your your dimensional uh accuracy of the bend but you you that flat that you milled before doesn't focus the energy of the bend directly to a single point so it doesn't crack the metal so i ended up doing that across all of these bends and they came out beautiful like absolutely flawless basically it's probably not the strongest thing on earth uh i don't know if i would do that in a production environment or if i would you know do it for something that had to hold a lot of weight but for making a, a rack mount case for projects and things like that i mean like i said to be able to walk into a shop with just an idea and leave with a case that looked like you spent a lot of money on it is pretty and especially
1: if you can machine a small groove like that as well
0: yeah i want a yeah a one millimeter bit yeah, drive that around sixteen, seventeen inches, uh, but the, I mean the, the the thing is, if you have a spindle that can spin at fifty two thousand RPM, then you can push a one millimeter bit pretty damn fast, you know, because it's only mm-hmm. taking really, really small nibbles every cut. Also, the the bit, the uh, the one millimeter bit I have is a single flute, so it's like a it's like a curved razor blade. That uh, I mean, you're spinning it at some ripping speeds. And it cuts through aluminum like butter.
1: So that's actually interesting uh, construction technique because it reminds me. when I made the um, the electrical panel switch panel in the Jeep. I uh, it's made out of like quarter inch aluminum, which is way overkill, but it's what I had in hand, and I needed to put a bend in it. And I actually ran it on my table saw, and I I took about a you know a, a blade on a table saw is so an eighth inch and in, in kerf. And I was able to slot out about half the material on my table saw. And then I bent it. So almost the same kind of bend. They're, actually, that's exactly the same kind of bend.
0: If you just took the edges of that uh, of the channel and then you chamfered
1: those such that once you bend it, they close up. Yes. Well, I was bending it. A, I was doing a, uh, a valley bend. Right, right, right. Also, there's the bend. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm showing Parker some, uh, some images. Let's we'll take of some pictures of
0: that. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take some, uh, this is just the lid to the enclosure that I made, but, um, uh, I, the thing that's crazy is like, I was able to bend this all by hand because this was pretty soft aluminum. Um, but we'll, uh, yeah, the whole rack mount unit that I made, uh, I was able to bend it by hand. And what's really nice is if you, cause I have a known thickness of material, after the bend, I could be pretty confident of my uh, outer dimensions and I hit them really really nice, you know for hand bends. So mm-hmm. if you have a really nice mill available,
1: then uh, I can share these cuts with you. <laughs> ha- handcrafted rack mount cases made by CNC. yeah. so um, <laughs> also the uh,
0: I wanted to talk about a little bit about the circuit that went into this um, rack mount case. It's nothing uh, particularly special. it's just a, a guitar preamp however one of the things that we uh that both josh and i have always wanted to change about guitar preamps that has been a a huge i don't know annoyance is that uh traditionally there's a, a part of the circuit that is basically meant for tonal controls and uh most guitarists call it a tone stack and that that word doesn't necessarily mean anything electrical, but the reason why it's called a tone stack is because the actual way you draw it on a schematic usually puts three potentially potentiometers stacked on top of each other. So treble, middle and bass. And, uh, in a, in a passive configuration of tone stacks, um, they're almost always drawn the same way. There's, there's a few variations, but in general, they're always that. And it's, um, one of the things that always sucks about those kinds of tone stacks is usually the source impedance that drives these tone stacks is not particularly high. So they're very lossy. They drag down whatever stage is driving them. And it's sort of like a treble middle bass pick two and the other one's not going to work. So like you can design it where your treble and your middle are really powerful, but your bass just sucks like I, and what I mean by that is like as you turn the knob, you get very little interaction, um, gotcha. or or that knob doesn't actually do what it says it does. And mm-hmm. I've hated that because it's just like why do we have knobs that don't do what they need to do? So I've always wanted to to design a better EQ. And earlier this year, I, I designed the big more the bigger flagship, the Vent EQ, which is a 20 band graphic EQ, which is a little bit overkill for or a lot of it overkill for what this application was. What we really wanted was a four band EQ that first of all ran on high voltage because I didn't want to create a second power supply just to run low voltage stuff. And I also didn't want to have to do level transitions from high signals down to low and then back to high uh, in order to interface, you know, uh, solid state electric uh, electronics with it. But also we wanted to have low mids and high mids available. So we have bass, low mid, high mid, treble is our kind of our configuration with that. So I ended up designing a a circuit that uses gyrators, which we have talked about before. But previously we mentioned gyrators um, to not be signal conditioning uh, circuitry. We mentioned them more as power supply, inductor, or choke replacements. But what I what I ended up doing and and I'm super happy because it worked beautifully um on the first go, which I was this this was one of those circuits that was designed entirely in simulation out of an idea in my head where I just uh, you know I didn't even test the sub circuits of it. I Thought of it, I was like, "Yeah, that should work." I simulated the snot out of it, and then actually physically built it, and go freaking figure it worked. <laughs> like it the simulations, worked. yeah. So um, this is I used a differential pair, like the input, like that most op amps would use. However, that differential pair is a vacuum tube, such that it can run on 300 volts, and I buffered one of the outputs of the differential pair with a high voltage MOSFET, so I get the benefit of having high voltage input and being able to handle that, but then I get the low uh, impedance output from the MOSFET. And then from the, the two inputs of the differential pairs, I connected a potentiometer across them, and that then connects to a gyrator, which a gyrator circuit effectively depending on how you hook it up, you can simulate an inductor or you can simulate an inductor and a resistor and a capacitor in series, an RLC circuit. And with an RLC circuit, depending on how you set the values and everything, you can m- effectively make it resonate at a particular frequency. Uh, so de- depending on how I s- configured that, I could change the Q of each one of the uh, bands in the EQ. And I, so I set everything at, the lows are at 80 Hertz. The low mids are at 220 Hertz. The high mids are at 750 Hertz. And then the highs are at two, uh, two kilohertz. And, um, so basically sweeping that pot across its range, uh, effectively takes the impedance of the gyrator and connects it from one side of the differential pair to the other side of the differential pair. Uh, basically it's a really, really stripped down op amp circuit with mm-hmm. a, with a, Pot that sweeps across the two inputs, which is a pretty common circuit if you uh, for for doing filtering and things like that, um, or EQ filtering. But I did it on the scale of vacuum tubes, so each one of the gyrators uses an IRF820 um, high voltage MOSFET. So uh, for that, I had to create a second rail, so a uh, power supply rail. So they they run on 300 volts, but they also need to be referenced half scale. So I created a second um, circuit that produces 150 volts so we got 300 150 and then basically by just selecting resistors and capacitors i I was able to uh convince each one of those gyrators to be an rlc circuit that resonates at those four frequencies that i said before and the cool thing too about it is it has a really 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 huge input uh basically acceptance range you can put massive signals into it before it distorts so it it acts like generally a transparent eq where like large signals come in you don't distort it but you can filter them so you can put you know your master volume through this thing and put 20 30 40 volts into it and it's really not going to distort so super happy with how that came out and it's got a really nice cool looking enclosure that everything goes into now that you seen yeah you you made yeah so that's what i've been up to that was a lot but or a lot. Of, I, I'm going to have windy. to see
1: this, uh, gyrider powered EQ someday. I'm going to post
0: my schematic of it. And, and I love it because my schematic only exists in spice land right now. So, <laughs> um, I, I haven't, I haven't actually through. measured the exact frequencies that, uh, that the circuit is doing. However, when you turn the knobs, it sounds like those frequencies. So like (laughs) my ear is telling me that I got close enough, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm, That's only 224 Hertz. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Actually with how bad this circuit is, I guarantee you, as you turn the pot, it actually shifting the frequency also as the amplitude of the filter goes up and down. So it's somewhere around 220 Hertz.
1: So, so the, do you just like to test that do you just like pump white noise into it and then see what comes out?
0: No, I just play my guitar through it and turn knobs.
1: Ah, well, I'll try <laughs> No, out no, no. Okay. So actually
0: yeah, in <laughs> in reality if I yeah, I mean eventually I will connect it up to my computer and physically measure those things. And that's a good way of getting a uh, an approximation. You can put white noise into it. And then turn the knobs and just watch the amplitude of the white noise. Uh, or mm-hmm. you know, you have to look at it across the spe- uh, spectrum. Yeah, an you know.
1: FFT of it. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: I I was doing something with that the other day. I can't remember now. Gosh, I was doing some kind of filtering just the other day and uh, doing exactly that, and it was fun to watch the filtering um like affect the noise because uh if you if you're doing a cut you're not actually you're sort of not looking at the white noise content you're looking at the opposite of white noise what i mean by that is like you're not looking at the content of the white noise and stuff you have to look at the peaks and watch the line of mm-hmm. the peaks i don't know that's fun
1: yeah cool, cool. on to the rfo rfo so key now has action plugins at least that's what the hack day article says um, so KiCad with like version four added the ability to do Python scripts and, but they were external. So you had to like install like KiCad's like Python library and then you like, uh, and then you ran your Python script externally. Well, it seems like now you can actually, through like a drop down menu, you can run those script, same scripts internally in your EDA tool, much like Eagle's, um, Eagle scripting works. Yeah, the ULP stuff, which is, that's kind of exciting. Like, you can actually write your own tools now, which is really nice. That's one of the reasons I like Eagle a lot is there's sometimes you're like, hey, I need to do this automation thing. I can actually write something to do it. Right. And so having KiCad support that kind of functionality is pretty cool.
0: And uh, in in this Hackaday article, they were showing off a video of... um, one of these plugins called rf tools where you can you can uh, you know it's a via stitching tools and and um creating like proper impedance traces and things like that but one of the things i thought was really cool is they had a um, a, a tool where you could add curved traces but you get to choose the radius of the trace and you choose two stems of a trace and it'll automatically radius them which might not be a unique tool for a lot of other people but in dip trace doing curve traces is kind of a pain in the ass uh just because of the way that dip trace handles curves it's Mm -hmm. it's such a pain in the ass that i don't even do it uh not not that like curve traces are like an everyday occurrence or anything like that but if if I had to do it, it would be like, oh God, this is going to suck. You know, just because like you don't get to pick things as in, like, here's the my curve, here's my radius, this is what I want. You have to do a lot more work to it. It's almost yeah. like three point arcs that you have to do everything in dip trace with. And that Oof. really sucks.
1: <laughs> That's pretty rough.
0: So I thought this was super cool that you could just pick two stems and say, give me this radius and it would pop, pop it out.
1: Yeah. So KeyCAD just needs to fix one more thing. Oh, what's that? The how the middle mouse scroll wheel works that zoom functionality is just awful it, where it will so if you use in Keycat, if you have your mouse on the screen and then you use a scroll wheel instead of zooming towards the mouse like like if you like a normal CAD program or actually any almost every single UI design program when you s- scroll with the wheel it zooms in or out depending on which direction but in relationship to your mouse so like if your mouse is like on the right side of the screen it zooms closer to the right side of the screen right right right. in keycat it snaps your mouse to the center and that's the center of location so it like jars the whole screen around yeah when you do that it it it, that whole functionality of how that works i just can't use keycat because of that
0: yeah yeah i remember that now that's yeah that's pretty rough uh yeah, like it should always should always um, go towards
1: the mouse for sure. Yeah, but Keycad does that, but to the extreme. It's it it basically snaps the the view to that and then zooms in a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Okay, this is this is one thing that DipTrace does that bothers the living snot out of me, and I'm I, I'm curious if uh, Keycad does something like this in in all of DipTrace's programs, which there's there's four kind of like quadrants to it. They basically have your pattern generator, your component generator, your PCB layout, and your schematic. That's like the four ecosystem Mm -hmm. thing. In all of them, this is true. And it's so annoying. If you select something and you copy it, and then you click paste, it pastes that, whatever you just pasted, a fixed distance away from whatever you copied. So if you copy something, and then you scroll way the f- whatever away from it, and then you paste, it pastes it still a fixed distance away from the thing that you copied. In my opinion, if you paste something, it should appear where your mouse is, mm-hmm. and uh, and then you can place it. Like, it, it should, yes. you, when you click paste, it should like center on your mouse, and then you get to place it. So with DipTrace, like if you select an entire like chunk of circuitry and you want to copy that it will copy all of that circuitry. And then you click paste. It still paste it only a fixed distance away from all of the chunked circuitry. So if you accidentally deselect something, you've now doubled all of your crap everywhere. <laughs> and it's you have <laughs> stuff all over the place that are like crossing wires and things like that. So you, if you don't catch yourself, you can easily make a whole lot of extra work for yourself. You know, especially in the um if you're copying and pasting things on the board side. You don't mm-hmm. want to like that's terrible. That that makes it so much more difficult. I absolutely detest that. I wish that would change.
1: You mean work like a normal CAD tool, which is like when you paste, it does like a highlighted version of what you're pasting it, and then you get to select where it goes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Instead of just, yeah, yeah when you click paste, it it somewhere. Yep. <laughs> and I think I think if I'm not mistaken, it pasted uh, 0.1 inches in the negative Y direction and the positive X direction. Like so down and to the right.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Right, but like it's some person hard that. coded that in diptrace. Yeah, and so it's like, it, yeah, that's fine.
0: Yeah, it's this is all right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: no, no problem. And there's ways around it. And like, if
0: you know it's going to happen, you just work around that. But it's also, mm-hmm. I don't know, such a pain. You know, um, Corel Draw, which I use a lot at work. Also, um, when you copy and paste things, the paste function makes whatever you copy and paste paste exactly on top of what you just uh copied and pasted so like it places it in the exact same coordinates which i don't necessarily uh, dislike that because what i like if i have a circle that i know is one inch away from another circle i can copy and paste one circle and then click on it and say add one inch and it moves it immediately snaps Mm -hmm. over one inch that's not bad but in dip trace if it moves it to a different location then like oh gosh sorry okay yeah yeah, yeah. i'm done (laughs) 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 So our next topic in the Rapid Fire Opinions is um, about EE Web, which if anyone um, frequents EE Web, it's just basically an aggregator of EE news. Uh, the, The website has changed fairly recently um, and now it has more tools available. So if you go to the top of the page up there, there's uh, some tool functions that has a, uh, a handful of uh, EE calculators, which is cool. so like trace resistance and a, a whole bunch of RF tools and a uh, handful of other things. But they also have now their own EDA tool, which is called PCB web, which w- I thought would be fun. I actually created. A log into it and um just before we started the podcast i just threw something uh quick together um what i'm what i'm really kind of interested in is um, it seems that there's a lot of eda tools that are now becoming available that are a little bit more of these stripped down simple eda tools like this one the specific one, this PCB web, it's obviously a um it's a way for Arrow to sell products. And what I mean by that is like when you pull up this this tool, it looks like a regular EDA tool, but all the parts you can pick, it's suggesting like here, these are the whole arrow catalog. You can pick from any of these things. And I think mm. they also have a spice tool where like all the parts are like you can simulate arrow parts. And that's super cool. But at the same time, it's like, gosh, there's so many more EDA tools than when I started now. Like because there's Should like macrofab have their own EDA tool? You know, I talked to the CEO about Macro tool at, at one point in time. I was like, what about an EDA tool? And he's like, I don't want to code that.
1: <laughs> well, because at the time when we started macrofab was when like easy EDA and stuff was kicking up too.
0: Right, like the browser. Like all those ones. online ones. Yeah, yeah. Which don't get me wrong, they're super cool. I actually helped a buddy of mine uh, design a, a, a board in that uh, the other day, and mm-hmm. he, he got it built. It was his first PCB, and bam, you know, it worked out really well for him. Um, super cool. But like, as as somebody who uh, deals with uh, clients on a daily basis of people who run EDA tools, it's getting harder and harder. You know, to it,
1: continually it, support all these new ones.
0: Yeah, because like somebody's like, well, I designed this entire thing. I'm passing it off to you. And now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to learn a whole brand new thing now just to be able to support your product. It's yeah, it's getting a little tough. So I don't know. Check this out, though. This PCB web. Of course, you have to like, you know, you have to sign up and give them all your uh, uh, a DNA sample and everything just to be able <laughs> to use this little product.
1: Firstborn baby. Mm hmm.
0: I, I played around with it. It it looks like a clone of Keycad and Altium. Interesting. Which don't get me wrong, their their um, schematic and everything has a really clean look. I I've always kind of liked that. Keycad looks really really like Altium, though. <laughs> like, it's clear yeah. they had some inspiration there.
1: Cool. Cool, I guess. <laughs> oh great um so I, guess- I don't know i think i think ulti uh Ultium is like dark mode key cad this new version dark mode how so it's the interface is dark and KiCad's interface isn't dark
0: oh oh i got it yeah no no yeah, yeah but yeah. the schematics look i mean the the whole yellow boxes and and things like that oh yeah yeah across the, board, the
1: yeah. um we actually speaking of dark mode we use a tool called Fab three thousand here at, at the Fab for looking at Gerbers and ODB plus plus stuff, and we we uh, started using it on version seventeen. So version eighteen is it version seventeen? Anyways, a ver- new version comes out. I think it's a couple months ago, and the big feature was it was dark mode. Really? And they seriously just made everything charcoal colored, <laughs> dark, and like mode. And, and made all the text white. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of dark mode stuff. Really? Yeah. It's like so, I don't know. So I I never do uh,
0: white schematics. I like dip traces, black and yellow lines. Like it's just so much easier on the eyes.
1: I like I like the schematic to be white with green, and then PCB is you know whatever color your layer is, and then black background.
0: Yeah, it's got to be black background. It's got to be. Yeah. I, I've seen but, I've seen some people do white background PCBs, and it just makes me go. um into one of your triggers. Like oh, no, and like it's just like, oh how do you do that? Like my eyes go cross-eyed fast.
1: So that's where we differ. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't see a big draw for dark mode. But some people, I guess, with new OLED displays and stuff like that, that dark mode saves power for those kind of displays. So, yeah.
0: Isn't um, everyone on Reddit or Reddit mobile is is going nuts about like, I think what the the browser version of Reddit has dark mode, but the the mobile doesn't. And it's like, wait, the mobile is the one that should have dark mode because you got people laying in bed, you know, late at <laughs> night, scrolling through stuff, and it's just the brightest light you've ever seen.
1: <laughs> Finding all those memes late at night. That's right. Okay, so Last RFO.
0: Last RFO is actually... Um, I was just kind of cruising through some um, some articles I found about the new Apple AirPod Pros. Actually, I was I was looking at some articles about some counterfeit AirPod Pros, and I realized oh, I haven't been to Apple's website in I don't know a decade or so. So I, I wanted to go there and see what kind of uh, marketing wink they had going on with their AirPod Pro stuff. And on their page for these AirPod Pros, which by the way are two hundred and forty nine dollars for uh for the pair
1: no wonder people have counterfeit ones <laughs>
0: right right so well okay and and the whole point of this is like oh you cannot counterfeit because apparently these airpod pros have the h1 chip and i was i was looking at the uh, their webpage for these pros and they have a comparison against their airpods so the non professional pods i guess and they're they're showing this comparison so you can you know pick which one you want to buy and it says with a check mark that they both have the H one chip, but no description of what that means
1: or why you yeah, would. Yeah, how care. does the average user be like? Oh yeah, the H one chip that is what I want.
0: Well, and and looking into this, so I am not an <laughs> Apple fanboy, obviously, but like, so Parker and I did a little bit of research, and so previous generation of the AirPods had other chips like the W one chip why is this not a (laughs) w2 you got to fill out a w2 just to just to buy their thing (laughs) (laughs) but it's like wait okay so they put this check mark on this h1 chip but no description on what that is or even why that makes it great and in my opinion like that is some serious marketing wank right there because you know they're just building up people would be like hey parker you know it has the H1 chip in it. And you're supposed to be like, oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's
1: great. I'm going to go out and buy it right now. Yeah, I need that H1 chip with salsa. Uh, I mean, Siri. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I found it. It's funny. I found a website that was doing reviews on these AirPod Pros. And and the, the funny part about it is the fact that the website is androidauthority.com, uh, which is like, wait, what? Okay, well. We'll skip over that. But they had this one paragraph that I just I wrote down here because I wanna I wanna read this just because well let me just read it and then we can talk about it. Let's back up a second and consider what exactly the Apple H1 chip does. It's not a processor in the smartphone or PC sense, it's not running a complex operating system or powering a display. No, the H1 is a streamlined chip designed for just a few tasks. Apple keeps the energy of the chips a secret, but we do know that it includes a modem for handling Bluetooth connectivity, a digital signal processor for decoding compressed audio stream, and a coprocessor, possibly a second DSP for handling sensor information.
1: So it's a custom designed microcontroller.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a custom designed microcontroller that probably just handles the audio stream. Yep. So there's nothing special about this. Uh I don't know. That kind of stuff bothers me. Like, hey man, this has got the H1 chip in it. Better go out and get it. Yeah. I think I think the next thing I design I'm just going to uh, it's the T1000. Oh, I it's going it. to so have a T1000 would... chip in it. That's
1: for sure. A T1000 chip <laughs> is you take a take a, a your a tube amp, right? Mm-hmm. And then epoxy fillets oh, and so it's so, like yeah. all filled with resin and make it a ginormous chip
0: oh yeah i like this yeah. idea and they
1: call it the s1 the steven one. Oh yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> you okay so I, I can't i can't dog on apple too much so they've had a history of having custom named chips in their products right The like the uh the was machine and stuff like that back in the day but it wasn't like Back in the day, they didn't necessarily use that as like some marketing wank to say like, whoa, man, he's got a was machine inside of it." You know, better, better watch out. You know, got <laughs> like, a was machine. Yeah, it's worth another
1: three thousand dollars because of that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> it's really what gets me on this advertisement for this this AirPod is it's seriously comparing it to like another of its own thing that also has the h1 ship right it's not a comparison at that there's not a comparison (laughs) at all it's like yeah they both got it yeah but like it doesn't have like why is that more important than not having it who knows right no they're just built it's it's obviously just building hype you know and somebody's gonna
0: walk around and be like so okay now here's the thing this reminds me of this is really going to become a nostalgia podcast here uh, or nostalgia episode. This reminds me of being like 12 and, and having a super Nintendo and being like, dude, Nintendo 64 is coming out. It's got 64 bits. If you asked me to, to tell you what that meant, I wouldn't be able to tell you what that meant, but it had 64 of them, you know, (laughs) like,
1: (laughs) or, the Super Nintendo's got Mode Seven.
0: Modes, yeah, yeah, you're right. Actually, have you ever looked at the 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 or the? Go ahead. Well, the the you know all the modes that the Super Nintendo had. Like, have you ever looked at at all of those modes? So one through six are like pretty damn close. They're pretty much like cop- copies of of each other with some slight variations. Mode mm-hmm. Seven was really the only one that like was drastically different, and it looked awful. I mean I mean well it, now it looks awful uh back in the day it was like the coolest thing ever cuz you could play Mario Kart in in mode 7 like <laughs> a 340 by 2 uh 240 jpeg that's stretched out across your entire screen <laughs> at an angle
1: <laughs> the um I think the most amount of marketing though would be towards like the uh the Sega uh Master System or um oh the blast processing would- yeah, blast processing. Yeah, but um, the other one, Turbo Graphics had also just as crazy uh, marketing. Can't remember what their big stick though was. You
0: know, I I can't remember. I really think we talked about this at one point in time. Like we way have back talked about day. this before. Well, no, but like specifically, there was a guy I I saw who um he hacked his Genesis such that he could control the clock speed on the fly and so he could just press a button and he he could double his clock speed which the genesis processor actually would handle that it would it would heat up very quickly but the guy would use it at select points in uh in games like remember if you were playing sonic and you had a boatload of rings and you hit an enemy, then all the rings explode and the, and the system just like goes nuts and slows down like crazy. He would press that button right then and <laughs> double his speed. And it actually worked. He had some videos of it. That was, it was super cool. Like it, it, there was very little slowdown after that. And he would just basically have it on like a foot pedal that he could throttle the speed of his Genesis. thought that was super awesome. <laughs>
1: So yeah, Turbo Graphics, they had a uh they had a comic book with Johnny Turbo. Johnny Turbo. Johnny Turbo. Well, man, those were simple times. Whatever happened to
0: those? Those were great. Do you remember um gosh, like, what was this? Like the, the guy from the Nintendo Power Nestor or whatnot?
1: I never read Nintendo Power. Oh, so. you weren't one of those kids? Okay. Yeah. Nice. Also, it's not the Turbo
0: up. Graphics; it's the Turbo Graphics sixteen because the 16, number yes. mattered
1: back in the day. Yes, the number mattered back in the day. <laughs> if you want to look at awful uh, consoles, though, look at the uh, Atari Jaguar controller. Hey, but the Jaguar was sixty-four bits. Also sixteen, and also thirty-two bits. It was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it had all kinds of different buses, right? Yeah, that was its downfall is no one knew how to program for it so right well we should wrap up this episode 199 almost there almost there so that was the macfab engineering podcast we are your host parker dillman and, and craig go buy turbo graphics 16 today take it easy 64 <laughs> Thank you, yes, you, a listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You get to that by going to MacFab.com slash Slack, fill out some information, bam, you're in. And if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button on iTunes. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.